Last week, we looked at Daniel chapter eight, a chapter which was filled with incredibly detailed prophecies concerning the Persian Empire, Alexander the Great, and the Greek Empire, and the coming world leader commonly referred to as Antichrist. This week we reach what is undoubtedly one of the most incredible chapters in the entire Bible. It contains a prophecy that's considered by many to be the backbone of Bible prophecy, but it also contains one of the most incredible prayers recorded in the scriptures. And we're gonna dig into that amazing prophecy next Sunday because I don't want Daniel's prayer to be an afterthought or to be overshadowed by that fascinating prophecy. It's too important and Daniel's prayer has too much to teach us. So that's where we're gonna focus today. Let's begin together. Daniel chapter nine, verse one, it says, in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign. So this is Darius the Mede, a king who was placed over the realm of the Chaldeans. In other words, he was a king appointed over the province of Babylon. Cyrus the Great was the ruler of the Medo-Persian Empire, the empire ruling the world at this time, and it was an empire so large that he appointed kings to serve under him to oversee the different regions of his kingdom. Darius was one of those kings. He was the king that Cyrus placed over the province of Babylon. And we met Darius back in Daniel chapter 6. He was the king of Babylon at the time the famous Daniel in the lion's den incident unfolded. So he says, I, Daniel, understood by the books, underline understood by the books. The books is just a reference to the scriptures. Daniel's simply reading the Old Testament books that had been written by that time in history and they would have been most likely on individual scrolls. So he reads something in the scriptures which gives him understanding as to, then it says, the number of the years and then underline specified by the word of the Lord. Through Jeremiah the prophet, so the specific book that Daniel has been reading is the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah was one of the most prominent Old Testament prophets. Then it says that he would accomplish, underline, 70 years, 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. So after being in Babylon for decades, Daniel is reading through the scriptures and he comes across a portion of the book of Jeremiah where God is speaking through Jeremiah and God declares that the time that Jerusalem will lie in ruins, the length of time that Israel will spend exiled in Babylon, where Daniel is at this time is 70 years. Israel ended up in exile in Babylon because the Lord was disciplining Israel, but Daniel now realizes through the scriptures that season of discipline has a fixed length of time. It's not gonna go on forever, it's going to last for 70 years. Now it's fairly obvious what happens next in this chapter. This is the point where Daniel remembers that when the scriptures make specific prophetic predictions, we're never supposed to take them literally. And so he realizes there's no way that the 70 years could actually be 70 years and he simply moves on with his studies. I'm kidding, of course, I can't help myself, but I have to point this out, I was thinking about this. If Daniel had the same attitude toward Bible prophecy that most churches have today, the Jews probably would never have gotten out of Babylon because God wouldn't have been able to find anyone who would actually believe that he was actually going to take them out after a certain period of time. We take the word of God seriously and that means we take it literally unless there's a compelling and valid reason not to. 
and something seeming too difficult to come true is not a valid reason if you take God's word and God seriously. So Daniel is going to trust that God is speaking about a literal 70 years. So what did Israel do that was so terrible that God had to step in and allow their land to be destroyed, Jerusalem to be ruined, and the Israelites to be taken off to Babylon in captivity? Well, we went into detail on that in the very first message of the series. So I'm not gonna do that all over again, but here's the summary. Israel goes through a stretch of 490 years, 490 years of not serving God as their God. The people of Israel are doing terrible things. They're sacrificing their children to the false god Baal and engaging in out of control sexual ritual worship practices to the false god Ashtoreth. And throughout this 490 year season of rebellion, God is telling Israel through his prophets that they need to repent. They're going in a direction that he just can't bless. And if they don't repent, he's gonna have to step in and bring discipline into the situation to correct the course that they're on. But they won't listen. And so eventually at the end of this 490 year period, God says enough and he sends the Babylonians to conquer Israel and take its best and most useful citizens off to Babylon in captivity. And Israel is left a wasteland. So Daniel discovers in the book of Jeremiah that God has decreed Israel will be captive in Babylon for 70 years. Well, why 70 years specifically? Because under God's law, the land itself was to be given a Sabbath every seventh year. In other words, you could work the land, you could farm it for six years, but on the seventh year, the land was to be allowed to rest, to fallow is the agricultural term. And God's people would need to have faith that he would provide enough from the land during that sixth year to carry them through that seventh year. They would have to take that on faith. And it would seem counterintuitive to those looking from the outside in, but the Lord would supernaturally bless the yield of the land in year six. And of course we now know that when it comes to farming, this is simply the best way to treat the soil and to treat the earth, that the earth needs time to replenish itself And if you have farmland and you take every seventh year and allow the land to rest, that land will continue to produce for you. If you don't, you'll eventually exhaust the soil and it won't be usable anymore. So God said to Israel, because you've rejected me and you haven't let the land have its Sabbath year every seventh year, I'm going to take those years against your will. You've rebelled against me for 490 years. That means you owe me 70 Sabbath years. So you're gonna be taken off into exile in Babylon and the land is gonna have its rest because you're not gonna be in the land to farm it. That's why the Babylonian exile would last 70 years. Now because we have the same book of Jeremiah in our Bibles today that Daniel was reading back then, we know Daniel must have read two specific verses. I put them on your outline. In Jeremiah 25, the Lord said, and this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon, and you can underline 70 years. Then it will come to pass when 70 years are completed that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans for their iniquity, says the Lord. And I will make it a perpetual desolation. 
And then in Jeremiah 29, Jeremiah recorded, for thus says the Lord, after, you can underline, 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word towards you and cause you to return to this place, speaking of Jerusalem and Israel. So Daniel's reading this and he's realizing, my goodness, these things are about to happen. We're almost at year 70. There's a fixed length of time coming up on our stay in Babylon. And one of the things that we should take note of is that Daniel, a man who's been around the block more than a few times by this point in his life, a man who has seen God do miracles in his life and through his life, a man who walked more closely with the Lord than probably anybody else who was alive in his lifetime, that same Daniel is still a student of the scriptures after all this time. How easy it would have been for Daniel to say, the prophets, I don't need to read the prophets. I'm one of the prophets. How easy would it have been for Daniel to say, read the Bible. I don't need to read the Bible. I'm writing the Bible. I don't need to read it. He didn't have a church to lead. He wasn't in charge of the Israelites. God didn't give him that role. But he was in the word of God because he understood that we never outgrow the Bible. We can never exhaust the book. We can never reach the place where it has nothing left to say to us because the beauty and wisdom of Jesus are infinite. And Daniel was in the scriptures daily for the same reason you and I need to be in the scriptures daily because we want to know God more deeply. We want to know him. That's what Daniel was pursuing. He understood that his greatest need, like ours, was fellowship, a relationship with the Lord. And that's what Daniel was after. I love Daniel as well because one of the great tragedies of the modern Western church is that so often we're forced to choose between the mystical side of our faith and the scriptural side of our faith. I mean, if we're honest and and we speak in generalizations, we know it's true that if you want to be in a church where the gifts of the spirit are being exercised, where prophecy, exhortation, and words of knowledge and things like healing are, are, are flowing, then you better get ready to be in a church that's going to take the Bible out of context and not give it a very high priority because they're probably going to believe that most of the revelation they need is coming from the Holy Spirit. We don't need the Bible. We're just learning it as we go. And if you want to be in a church that's rooted and grounded in the Word of God, then that generally means you better get ready for a church that's not going to deal in the gifts of the Spirit not going to deal in words of knowledge or healing for the sick because they're going to get their revelation exclusively from the Bible. No Holy Spirit needed. And again, I'm exaggerating and generalizing for effect, but but I long, I was just thinking about the life of Daniel, I long for myself personally and for our church corporately to be more like Daniel, this balance of the mystical and the scriptural sides of the faith. It's not an either or, it's meant to be both and we need both. We need the gifts of the Holy Spirit active and operating in our lives and in our church. And the thing that allows us to do that effectively is being rooted and grounded in the word of God. Our faith is meant to be both mystical and scriptural. And I pray that we don't settle for half of the package that God is offering us. And I've been thinking about that this week. I wanna encourage you to do the same, to maybe just ask that question about your own life. Have you leaned too much in either of those directions? Have you loved the word so much that you give God no opportunity to speak to you outside of the word of God, just in the moments throughout your day? Or have you 
fallen in love with prayer and the Holy Spirit so much that you're not in the word because you think you don't need to be? That's a good question to ask ourselves every now and then. I've been thinking about that in my own life this week. And I love that Daniel, he doesn't set out to look for information in the scriptures. He's not looking for something specific. He's just reading and he just stumbled upon it. He just happened to stumble upon a piece of information in the scriptures that was critical to the people of Israel at that moment in history. And if the word of God is a vital part of your life on a regular basis, then I know you can relate to this. How many times have you just been reading through the Bible and you just happen to stumble upon a verse or a portion of scripture that speaks right into a situation that you're currently in. We could all tell stories about that. Why does that happen? It's because Hebrews 4.12 tells us the word of God is living and powerful. It's alive. Jesus is in the words of scripture. The word of God was alive in the life of Daniel and there's so many stories that the lives represented in this room could tell about how God's word has been alive to us in our lives. And if you'll take the step of getting into the word of God as a regular daily part of your life, you'll find it alive in your life as well, I guarantee it. Daniel wasn't in panic mode, tearing through the scriptures looking for an answer to a crisis. No, this answer came to him as he was simply reading through the scriptures which was just a regular part of his daily life. When you're a student of the scriptures, I want to encourage you with this thought. You create room in your daily life for God to speak to you. Do you realize that? Every time you open up the Bible, every time you set aside time to do that, you've now created space and room in the noise and the busyness of your daily life for God to speak to you. And whatever he wants to say to you, he is able to speak through his word in that moment. And I so appreciate that because when you're tired, when your kids have worn you out, when you don't feel focused, there are times in my life where I think, man, I'm I'm gonna go pray and 30 seconds in and I'm falling asleep. And those are the times, especially when I'm so grateful, I can read the word, I can do that, I can focus and that will keep me focused right now. And God will speak inevitably through his word because he's always faithful to do that. And I know this is gonna sound oversimplified, but this is the first fill-in on your outline. It's a foundational truth of the Christian life. We're gonna begin to look here at five major keys to effective prayer that we can learn from Daniel's model, how he prays to the Lord. This is not the only way to pray. I'm not telling you that how you're praying is wrong. These are just lessons we can learn from Daniel. The first one is this. Sounds oversimplified, but the word of God is found in the word of God. The word of God is found in the word of God. And I think what I've seen in human nature, even in myself, not just in non-believers, but in Christians as well, is we love the more exotic ideas of God speaking. We love the stories of, you know, I really heard from the Lord that time I was free climbing up an enormous mountain face, alone in the middle of winter, That's where God really spoke. And you know how I know that? Because of the number of backgrounds churches have for worship songs that have Christians standing in exotic natural locations doing this. I mean, if you looked at most worship backgrounds, you'd think that's what Christians do. We go hiking and we do this on tops of mountains. We do this in front of waterfall. We like to find a field full of flowers and do this and have our friends take pictures of us. That's just what we like to do. And we we love exotic ideas. Even non-believers, if you told them, here's a truth I've learned. They're not gonna give that anywhere near as much credence as if you say, here's a truth I learned 
after I spent a month in silence in a monastery in Tibet. Right? They're going to go, oh, oh, this sounds good. This must be profound. Because we love things that require effort on our part and that seem exotic. And so, so often we think, oh, what is God's word for me? What is his will for me? I'm going to do this ascetic practice. I'm going to go walk in circles for an hour a day and wait for God to speak. I'm going to do this, this, this. Do you have any tricks that you can tell me of how I can hear from God? That's why I say this is the first key. The word of God. What God is saying to you and I is found in the word of God. That's why it's called the word of God. You've just got to open it. But there's something in us as people that just goes, no, come on, it can't be that simple. Can't be that simple. Yes, it is. That's why he wrote it for us. The first step to praying effectively is finding out what the word of God says. You know, the Bible says we don't even know what to ask God for unless God helps us know what to ask for. So the first thing we need to do is open the word of God and say, hey, what does God say about my situation? What does he say about the kinds of things that I'm going through right now? What is God saying to me through his word? Sometimes we don't do that because we know deep down what the word of God says, right? And we're looking for a second opinion. I've experienced that before. Hey, I think you know that what you're doing is not what God would have you do because this is what the Bible says. Well, I'm going to pray about it. Why? God's already spoken through his word. If God's word is clear, you got nothing to pray about. Just do what the word of God says. So Daniel discovers in the book of Jeremiah that Israel's time in Babylon is to be 70 years and he realizes they're getting close to the end of that time. But as Daniel reads through Jeremiah, he also reads over and over again all the warnings that God gave to his people through Jeremiah. He reads about the ways that God's people sinned against him, rebelled against him, and he reads about why they ended up in Babylon. And once we've discovered what the word of God says to us by being in the word of God, the next question is, how are we going to respond to what the word of God says? How are we going to respond to it? Will Daniel say, man, God is way harsh, or You know, I don't think my people were really that bad. Or is he going to say, you know, that that might apply to other people, but but not to me. I mean, I'm, I'm Daniel. The Bible doesn't say a single bad thing about me. How did Daniel respond to what God said in his word? Let's read verse three. Daniel writes, then I set my face toward the Lord. That means I focused on God to make request by prayer and supplications with fasting sackcloth and ashes. Fasting, you know what that means? It simply means refusing to eat. Dressing in sackcloth, that would be camel skin worn with the hair facing inward to irritate the skin. And then ashes, covering oneself in ashes, like from a fire. They were all ways of showing grief and mourning. And in Daniel's case, he's doing these things to show his grief and mourning over the sins his people have committed against God, the sins that caused them to end up in Babylon. Fasting is something we still do today. Mercifully, we don't really do the camel's hair thing, and I'm really, really glad for that. It'd be awkward for me to preach if one of you were doing that and just itching yourself throughout the whole message. And you don't have to cover yourself in ashes. But fasting is something we still do because it still works the same way. It's not a cultural thing. 
True biblical fasting is not taking in any calories and it creates a physiological response in your body. It slows down your metabolism, but it slows down everything in your body. And you experience a clarity of thought because all that busyness you have that we all struggle with so much in this social media technology age, all of that slows down and suddenly you're more easily able to hear the Lord speaking to you. That's what fasting is about. It's not a a hunger strike. It's not saying, God, until you move, I'm not going to eat. You're not being a toddler doing this until God answers your prayer. Fasting is about focusing. It's about slowing down and creating room in your mind, your body, and your spirit to hear from the Lord. And if you want to do an incredible study on the subject of fasting, let me recommend you really digging into Isaiah chapter 58. It's where God speaks on the subject of fasting. We're not going to do it this evening, but I commend that to you in your own studies this week. And if you want to find out more about fasting on a practical level, how that works, I put a link on your outline too to the church's website where we talk about that a little bit. So Daniel puts on camel's hair facing inward, he fasts and he covers himself in ashes to take a posture of mourning and grief over his people's sin. Verse four, and I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, underline confession. Here's the second key to effective prayer. You can write this down. This is the second key. Agree with the word of God. Agree with the word of God. As we listen in on Daniel's prayer, we're gonna find something fascinating we're gonna find that if you were to read through the book of Jeremiah and and make a list of all God's grievances against the people of Israel, all the things they're doing that are offensive to God, you're gonna find that Daniel is going to repent on behalf of his people for each of those things. He's gonna go through everything that offends God and Daniel is gonna say, we did that, we were wrong, it was wicked. He's gonna agree with God over and over again. He's not gonna try and justify their sin. He's not gonna blame God in any way. He's simply going to agree with what God has said. And if we wanna pray effectively, we've gotta know what God's word says about our situation and then we need to agree with what God's word says about our situation. If God says what we're doing is sin, we need to agree with him and repent. If God says he's gonna take care of us, we need to agree with God and thank him that he's going to take care of us. And I want us to really notice what Daniel says about God and what Daniel says about himself and his people. He's gonna speak so highly of God and he's gonna be so honest about him and his people owning their sin. He says, oh Lord, Great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments. You can hear Daniel's heart as he confesses, you're not the problem, Lord. You're faithful. You're good. You're true. We have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled, even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. He's saying we rebelled. We ignored your word. We ignored your laws. Man, is this ever one of the benchmarks of Christian maturity? When we finally reach the point where we stop blaming God when we experience the consequences of our own sins, our own failures, where instead of praying, Lord, when are you gonna give me what I deserve? 
we recognize that we never want the Lord to give us what we deserve because we finally realize what we really deserve and instead we're so thankful that the Lord gives us the complete opposite of what we deserve. Instead of death, we get life. Instead of hell, we get heaven. Instead of wrath, we get mercy. But it takes longer than you think to come to that place. There's something in us that thinks because God has forgiven us, we should also be freed from experiencing the consequences of our sins and our failures. We think God is somehow in the wrong. Lord, why am I still experiencing the effects of that sin I committed years ago? You've forgiven me, why am I still experiencing the effects of that? God has forgiven us, but we live in a world that has consequences. And it's the mature believer who understands, man, it is not fun to experience the consequences of our sin. But it's also not God doing that. It's us. God is faithful. God is good. God is true. And it's the mature Christian who looks back and says, my only regret is that I didn't listen to you sooner, Lord that I didn't obey you in that area, then I wouldn't have been experiencing this. But Lord, you're not the problem. I'm just experiencing the results of some of my own bad decisions. Part of growing up as a believer is putting an end to blaming, questioning, or expressing frustration at God when we experience the natural consequences of our own sins. And that's what Daniel is doing here. He's saying, God, it's not your fault that we ended up here in Babylon. That's not you being mean to us. We sinned, we rebelled, we ignored your word for 490 years. Verse six, Daniel prays, neither have we heeded your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings and our princes, to our fathers and all the people of the land. He's saying, Lord, when you sent prophets to us, we ignored them. As we could say, Lord, when you sent your word to me in that season of my life, I ignored it, I ignored it. Verse seven, O Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but to us, shame of face, as it is this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, those near and those far off in all the countries to which you've driven them because of the unfaithfulness which they have committed against you. Your hands are clean, Lord, as they always are. The shame is ours for being unfaithful to you. Verse eight, O Lord, to us belongs shame of face to our kings, to our princes, to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. And then underline, to the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against him. This is a key thing. We're now gonna begin to see Daniel's approach in repenting and seeking the Lord. His angle is not gonna be, but God, we're gonna do better. God, next time we're gonna get it right. We're we're gonna fix this. His angle is gonna be, despite what we've done, here's our hope. To the Lord belong mercy and forgiveness. So the third key to effective prayer is this. Understand the character of our heavenly father. Understand the character of our heavenly father. Out of all the ways God could have chosen to relate to us, and I think we sometimes forget this, he could have chosen to relate to us any way he wanted, 
But out of all those ways, he chose to relate to us as a loving father. And you know why that's so wonderful? Because no matter what my kids do in this life, they will always be my kids. Always. I'll always love them. And no matter how strained the relationship may get at times, there will always be the opportunity for it to be repaired. Always. Because they're my kids. They're my kids. You and I have a heavenly father who loves us. Always and forever. No matter what. And when you understand how much your heavenly father truly loves you, It'll change the way you pray. It'll give you confidence when you pray. Daniel says, he says, this is my hope. To the Lord belong forgiveness and kindness. And we begin to see the angle of his prayer as he approaches God. He's saying, my hope is in the character of who you are, God. Not in anything we can do, not in anything we can fix, but in who you are. That's the hope. Verse 10, we have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his laws which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. Yes, all Israel has transgressed your law and has departed so as not to obey your voice. Therefore the curse and the oath written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. And he has only confirmed his words which he spoke against us and against our judges who judge us by bringing upon us a great disaster. For under the whole heaven has never been done as what has been done to Jerusalem. He's saying, all you've done, Lord, is exactly what you said you would do. Exactly what you warned us you would do from the beginning. But we sinned. We left you. We failed to hold up our end of the bargain. We ignored you. Verse 13, as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us. You see, when God gave his laws and his decrees to the people of Israel, here called the law of Moses, God also offered them a covenant. And the gist of that covenant was this, put your faith in me and worship only me and you'll be blessed. But if you begin to serve and worship false gods instead, if you choose to turn your back on me, I will bring serious and disastrous discipline upon you. So you choose. That's the offer, that's the covenant he made with the children of Israel. And you can read about that in Deuteronomy 28. It takes up about the whole chapter. It's the covenant God offers them. That's what Daniel is referring to here when he says, God, you've only done what you said you would do. We're the ones who made the choice. Then he says, yet we have not made our prayer before the Lord our God that we might turn from our iniquities and understand your truth. He's saying, Lord, you brought your discipline upon us because we were headed in the wrong direction and we still didn't turn to you. We still didn't seek you. We still didn't repent. We still didn't seek the truth. Verse 14, therefore the Lord has kept the disaster in mind and brought it upon us for the Lord our God is righteous in all the works which he does, though we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and made yourself a name, as it is this day, we have sinned, we have done wickedly. When you read about the times that the children of Israel rebelled and, and God came to them and spoke to them and warned them, when you read about that in the Old Testament, you'll be struck by how many times the Lord says, I am the God who brought you out of Egypt and led you into a good land. And he's talking about the promised land. God would talk about that over and over again. 
And the whole point of that is God saying to the people of Israel, how in the world have you already forgotten everything that I've done for you? How have you forgotten the 400 years you were in bondage as slaves? How have you forgotten how I brought you out of that with miracle after miracle after miracle? How have you forgotten the way I led you through the promised land, defeating armies along the way against impossible odds? And if you know your Bible, you know that all of that, that journey of the children of Israel, is all one giant picture of our journey from being in the bondage of sin and death and being brought to life in Jesus. And I think that a lot of the time God would say the same thing to us. He would say, how have you already forgotten that I brought you from death into life? How have you already forgotten that I've saved you? How have you already forgotten that I've given you a hope and a future? And Daniel says in his prayer, Lord, we remember. That's what he's saying. He's saying, Lord, we remember that you brought us out of Egypt. Lord, we remember that you've done miracle after miracle for us. Lord, we remember. So the fourth key to effective prayer is this. Remember God's track record of faithfulness. Remember God's track record of faithfulness. You know, I love to talk about this. Remember his track record of faithfulness. If we want to build faith in our lives, we've got to start by recognizing and remembering the faithfulness of God. The faithfulness of God. As we read our Old Testament and we read about God saying to them, how have you already forgotten everything I've done for you? It's so easy to read our Bibles and go, yeah, what's up with those stupid Israelites? Man, they just don't get it, those ingrates. Blind to the reality that we are so prone to doing exactly the same thing. You know, we get in a financial pinch and suddenly our minds are just purged of all the other times in our life that God came through, all the other times God provided, all the other times it somehow just miraculously worked out and life went on and we didn't end up homeless. We forget about all that and instead suddenly we're like, this is it, I'm going under, it's been nice knowing you all, I love you, it's been great, I'm gonna die before next week because we're so quick to forget. And yet when we do instead choose to remember all that God has done for us, the result is that our faith is built up and made strong. It's built up and made strong. I had a moment in my life in my young 20s where probably like many of you have been through seasons, you may be in one now where finances are just week to week, week to week, paycheck to paycheck, sometimes day to day. And I was stressed about it for a while and then eventually just had the realization, you know what? Maybe I should start being concerned when I'm actually sleeping under a bridge. Maybe that's when I should start being concerned. Because that hasn't happened yet. And I'm pretty sure that's not going to happen. And so maybe instead of speaking doubt all the time and defaming the character of the God who says he's gonna take care of me, maybe I should just shut up and worry about it when the day actually comes when I'm sleeping under a bridge. Because that day is probably never gonna come. And instead, I made the decision from that moment, okay, I'm just going to speak faith. That's what we're going to do. We're not going to speak doubt. And God's always been faithful. He'll always be faithful. And he'll always be faithful to you as well. So let's make sure we don't have short memories when it comes to the faithfulness of God. And if you're in despair, if you are struggling with faith right now, 
I want to encourage you to spend some time when we worship after this message just remembering all the times that God's come through for you, all his faithfulness to you. And if you're even in the place where you're like, well, there, there isn't anything, Jeff. I can't remember anything. If you're, if you're that bad right now, just go all the way back to he saved you. He somehow got you to the place where you heard the gospel and responded to it and came into the family of God and became adopted as a son or daughter of God. He's done that. So just go back and thank him for that and begin there. And if you do that, you'll find that you'll begin to build your faith all over again because you're going to realize that the most logical assumption is that the unchanging God we serve is going to continue to be faithful just as he's always been. Remember what God's done. Remember it. Verse 16 now. It's probably my favorite verse of this whole prayer because this is Daniel's pitch in going to the Lord. What is he going to offer the Lord as a solution to this situation? Verse 16 O Lord, according to all, and then underline, your righteousness. According to all your righteousness, I pray, let your anger and your fury be turned away from your city Jerusalem, your holy mountain, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people are a reproach to all those around us. This is amazing to me. This is amazing to me from a theological perspective. Because hundreds of years before Jesus died on the cross, when the concept of a Messiah was only a promise concealed in the Old Testament scriptures, when the law was still active, Daniel here appeals to God by saying, Lord, deal with us according to your righteousness rather than our sins. It's extraordinary to me. Daniel says, don't deal with us based on our righteousness. Deal with us based on your righteousness. What is righteousness? It's simply rightness. When we stand before God and we're compared to his standard of perfection, his standard of what is right, and our thoughts and actions over the course of our lives are examined, how right are we? We're not. Not not at all. Not even a little bit. And so what Daniel is saying is, God, judge us based on how right you are rather than how right we are. And it's amazing to me because Daniel has has no idea how this would work out theologically. But Daniel knows God and he knows himself and he knows his people. And he recognizes that the only hope they have is the goodness of God. That there's no goodness in them. That's not a card that they can play. And that is exactly what the death of Jesus in our place on the cross accomplished. You and I have not entered into a relationship with God based on our goodness. We've been adopted into the family of God because of what's called the divine exchange. Jesus took all our sin and in return gave us all his righteousness. If you imagine them as robes is a terminology the Bible uses and Jesus has this robe of perfect righteousness that covers him. Ours is just covered in sin. The divine exchange is we switch robes and we are now wearing, we are covered by clothed with the righteousness of Jesus himself and he chose to be robed and clothed with all of our sin so when we stand before God we're found perfect because when God the father looks at us all he sees is the righteousness of his son Jesus the apostle Paul said it like this I think I put it on your outlines for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 
I love that verse, and I love that in my opinion, Daniel is praying that very verse to become a reality for him and his people. Hundreds of years before Paul would write that or Jesus would appear on the earth as a man. So write this down, the fifth key to effective prayer is to understand that we approach God the Father based on the righteousness of Jesus. We approach God the Father, we come before him based on the righteousness, the rightness of Jesus, not based on our righteousness. When you or I don't feel good enough to come before the Lord, don't feel clean enough to ask him for help with anything, feel like we've gotta get this thing in our lives sorted out or dealt with first before we can come before the Lord. When we feel inadequate, we need to remember that our righteousness is not what God the Father is looking at or evaluating. What he sees in us, on us, covering us, is the righteousness of his perfect son, Jesus. So am I confident when I come before the Lord in prayer? Yes, I am. Not because of who I am, but because of who Jesus is. Not because I'm righteous, but because Jesus was righteous in my place and he's robed me in his righteousness. Verse 17, now therefore our God, hear the prayer of your servant and his supplications. And for the Lord's sake, cause your face to shine on your sanctuary. That just means the temple, which is desolate. It's empty. And I couldn't help but thinking of 1 Corinthians six nineteen, which says your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Because after Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to come and dwell in every believer, the Bible says that our bodies are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't inhabit a building anymore. He inhabits believers, you and I. And so if you're feeling desolate, if you're feeling empty, you can come before the Lord this evening and ask him to cause his face to shine upon you. And you need to know that he loves that prayer. He loves it when we say, God, I'm empty. What I need is I need you. He loves that prayer because it blesses and honors your heavenly father when you let him know that you believe the solution to your emptiness or your despair is him. That honors him when instead of saying, God, what I need is a relationship. What I need is more money. What I need is this. When we say, God, what I need most is you. I need more of you. I need more of your presence. That honors him and he loves that prayer. Verse 18, oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city which is called by your name. Then I have the whole rest of this underlined in my Bible. For we do not present our supplications. That means we don't present our requests before you because of our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercies. And there it is again, Daniel declaring that his hope is not in himself or his people. He's not coming before God because he thinks he's good or his people are good, but his confidence is in the mercy of God. Verse 19, O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and act. Do not delay for your own sake, my God, for your city and your people are called by your name saying, God, we belong to you. We carry your name, so do what will make your name greater on the earth. Do in us what will make you more famous. And what an incredible prayer this is. There's so much for us to learn from Daniel. Next week, we're gonna be going through the most specific 
prophecy in the whole Bible that is to the day specific from one date in history to another. It's astonishing. I want to encourage you not to miss it. It's the most important prophecy in the Bible that you need to understand. It's the foundation for all biblical prophecy and we'll do that next week. You know, the purpose of prayer is not primarily to move the hand of God. The purpose of prayer first and foremost is to hold the hand of God. We pray so that we can gain greater understanding as to what the Lord is doing so that we can be in agreement with it, so that we can walk with him through it, whatever way he wants to lead us. We're not praying to get God on board with our agenda. We're we're praying so that we can get on board with his agenda. More important than prayer changing things is that prayer changes us. It changes us. There's a lot of times, if you've ever done this in life, where you've prayed about something and you realize, I don't know that the situation changed all that much, but I know I changed. I know God did something in me and I didn't look at the situation the same. I received a peace I didn't have before. I received a perspective on the situation I didn't have before. God revealed to me how he was doing something and it changed everything. It's more important that prayer changes us than that it changes things. And ultimately, the heart of Daniel's prayer is this. It's, Lord, we've been out of your will. God, deliver us back into your will. Whatever that looks like, you do it, Lord. And so if you find yourself spiritually desolate, spiritually empty, spiritually homeless, that's a good prayer to pray. Ask the Lord to deliver you back into his will. And I'll tell you why you don't need to be scared to pray that. What if his will is not a good thing? He loves you. You're his kid. He loves you. His will for you is always going to be the very best place you could be that will benefit you the most in the truest sense of the word for all eternity. Trust the character of your heavenly father. Trust that he's good. The steps in Daniel's prayer also outline for us how we enter into a relationship with Jesus. If you're a million miles away from a relationship with God today, this is how you get into a relationship with God. The first step is he reveals the truth to you through his word. You're here hearing this. You're listening to this online. You're watching the video online. Somehow God got you to hear his word. The second thing you need to do is agree with his word, which says we need Jesus, that we're not righteous, we're not good, on our own merit. We need God. We need the righteousness of Jesus. Thirdly, the the Holy Spirit comes upon you and suddenly you begin to understand that God loves you. For all of us who love the Lord, we have a moment where we can't explain what happened, but suddenly we understood that God loved us. It was just revealed to us. Fourthly, you recognize the character of God. You recognize that God is faithful and he's been working in your life to get you to this moment. And then lastly, you don't approach God and try to begin a relationship with him because you're righteous. You recognize that you're not, but you recognize Jesus has given you his righteousness. And you come before God and you say, I want to trade my sin for the righteousness of Jesus and give my life to him in return. That's how you begin a relationship with God. Those are the steps. With that, would you bow your head and and close your eyes and let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your servant Daniel. Thank you for uh, his heart for you, his heart for his people. And Father, we, we just want to agree 
with the same heart that Daniel had, that you are good. You are faithful. You're only ever good. You're only ever faithful. And Lord, your will for us is only ever good. Lord, you're right about everything. And so, Father, if we have been guilty of complaining, if we have harbored any thoughts that you are somehow not treating us as we should be treated, because we've been experiencing the consequences of our own sin, God, we just repent of that. You're good. And Lord, every, every bit of pain that we experience in life is the result of our sin or the sin of somebody else. But you're good. You're faithful. And so we thank you that instead of leaving us alone in a fallen, broken world, you've invited us into a relationship with you, an unchanging, ever faithful God who always loves us no matter what. Lord, we're so thankful to have you as a constant in our lives, as a reference point, as a firm foundation, Lord, as a strong tower, a place of refuge. Father, we pray for anyone among us who may be feeling just spiritually desolate this evening, just worn out, tired, empty. Father, we pray that you would fill them again with your spirit, that you would cause your face to shine upon them. Lord, help us to seek you and your presence and your will as the solution to our difficulties in life, Lord. Help us to trust you enough to even leave how those things work out in your hands. To trust your character and say, Lord, would you just work your will in my life? If I'm out of sync with you in any way, would you bring me back into alignment? All I want to be is in your will. In your will, Jesus. Thank you, God. Just be still before the Lord. Allow the Holy Spirit to minister to you, to fill you up, to refresh you. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.